0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Victor's Corner. I am your host, Victor Omoyo, one-fourth of the Codex Prime podcast, and today is Sunday, November 6th, 2016, and I am very glad to be back here once again with a brand new installment for you all, so thank you for listening and tuning in. Uh, As you guys know, uh, last week we did not have an episode of the Codex Prime podcast, and this week we will not have... Another episode because Tuesday is election day. So for all of you registered to vote, please go out there and do so. Rock that vote. Don't sit home. Otherwise, you have no right to complain about the results. Uh, well, then again, uh, if Trump wins, then you do have a right to complain. But anyway, um, we will be back, however, next Tuesday, November 15th, in which case we'll have plenty of things to talk about by then. Uh, one, of the, one of the things we're going we're gonna to get into next week will be the review of Doctor Strange, which, which just came out this weekend, as well as the Rhode Island Comic Con, which begins this coming Friday, uh, November 11th, and as well as Saturday, November 12th, and Sunday, November 13th. And uh, that's going to be pretty awesome. Um, I'm going to be attending. uh, My dear friend and co-host Carl will also be attending as well. So we will provide a detailed report of our experiences at the con uh, for next week. Uh, So right now, um, I have a couple of uh, movie-related things to get into. First of which is my review of uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's latest feature, The Neon Demon. And so The Neon Demon is the latest film by Nicholas Winding Refn, who directed such other films as Drive and Only God Forgives, both of which stars Ryan Gosling, as well as Bronson with Tom Hardy and Valhalla Rising with Mads Mikkelsen. And The Neon Demon is a film that I've always wanted to review on the main show, but for some reason I've never been able to get around to doing. And this is is a film that, for me, is one of the more... Unique film-going experiences I've had all year because for me this film was such a treat, and it's a film that I can't really recommend to anybody I know personally because I can tell that any everyone everyone else that I know will look at this film and be like, "Yeah, son, I I I don't I don't know about this shit." But I think I'm getting I think I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's talk about the story. So the film stars Elle Fanning, uh, Jenna Malone. Um, Christina Hendricks, Desmond Harrington, and Keanu Reeves in a small role. And the film follows uh, Elle Fanning's character, Jessie, who, who's a 16-year-old small-town girl who's trying to make it into in the high-profile modeling world of Los Angeles. And she befriends Ruby, played by Jenna Malone, who's this makeup artist who introduces her to two other supermodels, uh, both named Gigi and Sarah. And these two models both admire and are threatened by uh, Jesse's very presence because, you know, Jessie's natural beauty, her youth, and her overall waifish demeanor generates both praise and envy from her modeling peers. And as she becomes more and more immersed in her modeling world, uh, Jessie's circumstances become more, uh, shall we say, strange. Yeah, things get real weird pretty quickly. And for me, what can I say? This film was such a macabre, disturbing delight for me. And compared to reference previous film, Only God Forgives, The Neon Demon is a much stronger and more engaging film for me. Because in a way, uh, this film is like an R-rated modern fairy tale. And when you think about it, many of the old fairy tales that we grew up, you know, reading or listening to, or even watching in movie form or, or whatever, you know, when you think about it, many of the, many of those old fairy tales have very disturbing and very dark, uh, sometimes even adult underpinnings. And you know, you're not you're not too aware of that until you until you get older and you start thinking about it. And for me, the neon demon, in a way, kind of continues that tradition. It's a more modernized and perhaps even darker. Uh, version of of some of the fairy tales of yore, as the film unfolds, we gradually see Elle Fanning, Fanning's character Jessie, You know, she she starts to develop from this naive, innocent lamb to this more comfortable and confident wolf. She def- she eventually adapts to the L.A. environment and she starts starts to thrive in her shallow, image obsessed world, and. I gotta say, you know, in, in terms of the performances, you know, Elle Fanning, I thought she was very good in this. You know, she projects this air of innocence and as well as you know confidence when she starts slipping more and more, and once she starts becoming more and more comfortable into in, in her skin, and she and her and her presence really drives this film. Uh, watching her character, you know, uh, you know, develop through the film, one of the biggest themes of the Neon Demon is the corruption of innocence. And there's an early scene in the film where Jesse meets uh, Gigi and Sarah, those two other supermodels, with Ruby, and they're at the, in this like this this somewhat dimly lit uh, bath nightclub bathroom, and it's you know kind of bathed with you know purples and pinks and whatnot and dark shadows, and they're describing uh, lipstick colors and lipstick colors, which happens to be named after either food or sex. You know, and one of the uh, models quips that, you know, they say women are more likely to buy a lipstick if it's named after food or sex, like red rum or black honey or plum passion or peachy keen. And so this particular line of dialogue made me think about how these models seen in this film, and even models in real life, are kind of seen as objects of consumption, in particular male consumption. And so it's naturally fitting that these women in this film would use products named after foods or and other consumable goods because in a way these women are seen as disposable and interchangeable especially there's this one scene where uh, jesse is uh walking up and down this runway for this fashion designer who's just taken aback by her natural beauty and you see these other models and they they kind of seem like clones of each other and uh one of the models i think it was either gigi or sarah she's just completely crestfallen and just angered at the fact that she was passed over and speaking of which when you look at the characters of gigi and sarah uh, they both look like uh haute couture wraiths if you will (laughs) you know they're both pretty yet ghastly looking you know they're you know they have these tall skinny frames and they have these wide, piercing eyes, which makes them look as pretty as, and menacing at the same time. And so, when you look at them, they kind of seem like like uh, like highly fashionable specters in a way. And uh, there are there are other scenes uh, where everybody is just taken aback and just. Just standing in reverent awe at the sight of you know Jesse's beauty, and which I thought was pretty interesting because when I looked at the character of Jesse, you know I thought I thought she was okay. I thought she was I thought she was perfectly fine, you know. But I didn't see how you know drop dead gorgeous and you know breathtaking she was. I I didn't really see it personally. So I mean she just looked perfectly ordinary to me, and uh, maybe that kind of shows how. How the fact that these other characters are just gassing her up every chance they get, you know trying to ter- trying to turn her into this sort of like glamorous you know idol or muse, if you will. maybe that shows just how vacuous and and uh, empty such an image centric uh, business could be, you know that they're just you know, blowing smoke up her ass, you know, they're just, you know, filling her head with you know, everything everything that she wants to hear so that she can believe the hype, if you will. And as a viewer, as you're watching her, you're like, well, yeah, I mean, she looks nice, but I don't I don't see what the fuss is about. So maybe that kind of speaks to that uh that sense of hype and that sense of emptiness, if you will, that you see uh in this film. And that kind of that kind of reminds me of a later scene in the film where uh, this fashion designer uh, Robert Sarno, who's taken aback by uh, Jesse's beauty, I mean, he has a he has a conversation with uh, Gigi, uh, Jesse, and uh, her 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 male friend Dean uh, in this restaurant. And in this particular scene, uh, Robert's uh, criticizing women who undergo plastic surgery by saying that, you know, they are more or less inferior to naturally beautiful women who don't get any work done. And his comments are seen to be a, a pointed attack. Actually, don't seem to be. They are a pointed attack at Gigi, who is really embarrassed by and mortified by what he's saying. And in contrast, you know, Robert's praising Jesse's looks, you know, who's at this point in the film is completely made over head to toe. And she looks just like the other uh, models that that try to emulate her. And uh, what makes the scene interesting is the exchange between Jesse's. uh boyfriend uh not 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 a romantic partner but just a friend who happens to be a guy uh this guy dean and uh robert they have this uh, tense exchange where they're talking about um their differing views on what beauty is and robert says you know beauty isn't everything it is the only thing and then robert uh robert's views are challenged by dean who says that you know internal qualities are more important than external ones to which Robert replies well if she if she Gigi if she wasn't beautiful then you wouldn't have even stopped to look and you know like it or not Robert isn't entirely wrong in his opinions because as he says you know true beauty is the highest currency we have and which is in, in its most and its most especially true for Jesse, because She even admits in one earlier scene that she has no particular talents at all. She can't sing, she can't write, she can't dance, you know, she can't act. But she says that she can make money off pretty. And that also speaks to the relative ease in which she adapts to her vain and vapid environment. And speaking of pretty, you know, the cinematography in this film is just fantastic, uh, Natasha Brer was the uh, director of photography in this film and she provides some delicious visuals of you know, neon pinks and purples wrapped in shadows and there's plenty of striking imagery throughout this whole film uh, from the almost uh, sterile looking uh, cream-colored hall where Jesse and the other models are auditioning uh, to the surreal images that you see uh, where we see Jesse and others immersed with uh, triangular neon lighting you know, against this pitch black background, which seems like something straight out of a science fiction film. It, it just seems so, so odd and surreal. It, it it's just really, it really leaves a strong, you know, lasting impression in your mind. And all of these awesome visuals are complemented by the equally awesome musical score by Cliff Martinez, who also provided the music for reference uh, previous films, uh, Only God Forgives and Drive. And drive has a really awesome soundtrack by the way just just putting that out there uh martinez creates a really synthesizer heavy score for the neon demon and it gives off this sci-fi slash horror vibe which adds to the whole chilling atmosphere of the film and his music really complements the really disturbing and unsettling visuals that we see throughout the film like especially in the opening shot uh where we see jesse you know she's smeared in this uh blood bloody makeup and you know she's laid back on this couch and uh, you know the blood's just spilling all over her dress and, and down onto the floor and it just looks really 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 cool and um there's also some other really disturbing scenes too which uh which uh hmm i don't want to reveal any details But there is one rather infamous scene in this film, which uh, which you'll know it when you see it. As a matter of fact, I remember when I when I watched this movie uh, uh, this past summer and there were I watched it at the Providence Place Mall Theater and there were like there were four other people there. And there was this uh, couple which sat in my at the opposite end of my row and they happened to leave uh, midway through the film. And man, I wished I wished this couple actually stayed for five minutes longer because they would have seen the infamous uh, the infamous scene in the Neon Demon, which uh, <laughs> which is a big reason why I said earlier why I can't really think of anybody I can recommend this film to. But I got a kick out of it. I don't know about y'all and. Um, yeah, it's a scene in which people will look at me and go, "Victor, what the what the fuck are you into?" And I'll tell them, "Hey, I'm into fantastic filmmaking. Thank you very much." <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil anything. I'm not gonna reveal any hints. But you're just gonna have to see it for yourself. Um, speaking of disturbing things in the film, uh, Keanu Reeves uh, is is has a small role in this film as this really skeevy, really douchebag ho- motel manager who's just a fucking creep man y- y- you know he-, he just radiates strong strong douche chills every time you see him and uh, there was this one scene where he he's talking about one of the um one of the residents who's renting one of his rooms and he goes yeah man real Lolita shit <laughs> yeah and i'm like god man i need to, i need i need to take a goddamn shower Ugh. and also uh the neon demon is a deliberately paced film uh there's plenty of lengthy pauses in dialogue uh and the whole movie is just dripping in slick atmosphere and you just it's a film that you savor as you watch and so because of its de- its deliberate pacing it's a film that might try the patience of some Uh, moviegoers looking for a more conventional experience but I will say that if you're looking for something that's artfully done and uh, something that's that's that serves as a more uh, unique example of a horror film or or a thriller if you will uh, the neon demon is a film that you should definitely check out again I will say that this film is definitely not for everybody Um, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head that I know personally that I can recommend this film to uh well actually maybe a couple of people maybe one or two uh definitely definitely not uh the the fellas on the podcast they will look at this and be like what ew get the fuck out of here but um <laughs> but but you know what I am totally fine with that I am so fine with that because the neon demon is one of the more unique films of 2016 we have a couple we have less than a couple of months left at this point of the year so i would be surprised if the neon demon does not end up in my top 10 to 20 films of the year uh but we'll have to wait and see but like i said uh if you're looking for a film with uh striking visuals an awesome soundtrack and uh and if you have a taste of them for the macabre and you know disturbing horror elements then the neon demon is a film you should definitely check out post haste add it to your queue buy it on blu-ray it looks it looks beautiful you should definitely buy it on blu-ray yeah yeah buy it neon demon go buy this film i said it Speaking of buying Blu-rays, Barnes & Noble has their annual Criterion collection sale going on right now, all throughout the month of November. And for me, Christmas comes three times a year. There's the Criterion collection sale in July, uh, the current one in November, and then there's actual Christmas, which we all know is not anything special. But anyway... The Criterion Collection sale is awesome because I had a chance to pick up a few more uh, Blu-rays that I've had my eye on for quite some time. And uh, these are films that I recommend to anybody who's looking for a more unique and more engaging film-going experience. And the first film that I want to recommend you guys check out is this uh, 1971 Chinese film called A Touch of Zen, directed by King Hu. And this is a uh, wuxia film. Uh, in the same vein as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. As a matter of fact, A Touch of Zen is one of the main inspirations for Ang Lee's modern classic film, which came out in 2000. And A Touch of Zen is, is about this uh, this young woman, this young noblewoman named Yang, who's uh, hiding out in this remote village and as she's being pursued by the authorities who want her and her family dead. And so Yang befriends this, uh, this shy painter and professor named Ku. And together they they collaborate and they come up with a plan to uh, fight uh, these forces that are after Yang. And this film is three hours long, but it, trust me, it uses up its three-hour runtime very wisely. It's just so beautifully shot and it's filled with excellent martial arts action. There's a whole lot of excellent uh, widescreen compositions, so you see every bit of the action going down. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, breathtaking uh, visuals in this film which for me, I, I, I just I was just so amazed, mesmerized by. And the film takes the story of the film takes uh, some really unexpected directions, especially towards the last act and the ending of the film as well. And the film, uh, the the criterion uh, disc comes with a few uh, good supplements, including an an interview with Ang Lee. plus a a, a documentary about the director himself, King Hu. And for anybody who's a fan of unique martial arts epics, as well as the films of uh, Zhang Yimou, another great Chinese filmmaker who directed uh, Hero and House of Flying Daggers, you should definitely check out A Touch of Zen because this film was actually the prototype, the main inspiration for those aforementioned films. The second Criterion film that I highly recommend is Robert Altman's 1971 anti-Western, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, starring Warren Beatty and Julie Christie, who, who both play a gambler and a prostitute, respectively, and they both run a profitable brothel in this small mining town, and their business thrives until representatives from this mining company arrive into town and try to muscle those two out of their territory. And this film was such a delight. I was so overjoyed to see McCabe and Mrs. Miller arrive on the Criterion Collection, especially in a restored 4K edition. Because up until last month, in which uh, this film was released on the Criterion Collection, we've had a we've had a pretty, you know, not so hot looking DVD edition, which we've had for years, which we've had to make do with, and. It's a testament to how awesome the film is that I was still mesmerized by that film, even though the picture quality on the original DVD was not up to snuff. But thankfully, uh, Criterion gave it the star treatment that, that that it truly deserves. And it's a film that I give my highest recommendation. If you're a fan of Robert Altman's films, if you're a fan of Westerns, if you're a fan of both, by all means, you should add McCabe and Mrs. Miller to your film library. Next up is Terence Malick's 2005 feature, The New World, which is his live-action retelling of the Pocahontas story, which was beautifully and breathtakingly shot by my favorite cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubetsky. And what's cool about this criterion set is that it comes with all three versions of the film. It comes with the three-hour restored 4K cut, as well as the 135-minute theatrical edition and the two-and-a-half-hour first edition of the film. Uh, this the, the New World is just a poetic piece of art and it's just a film that I absolutely love. It's actually my second favorite Terrence Malick film, my first one being his 2011 feature, The Tree of Life, which should get a criterion cut in my opinion. And last, but certainly not least in my Criterion pickups is Clouds of Sils Maria, starring Juliette Binoche as Maria Enders, a world-renowned actress returning to starring the play that made her famous. Only this time, she's playing the older woman role, and not the leading role, which is now taken by this younger and more inexperienced actress, played by Chloe Grace Moretz. Uh, Kristen Stewart also stars as Valentine, who happens to be Maria's assistant. And Stewart gives a really noteworthy performance here. In fact, she actually became the first act- American actress to win the Caesar Award, which happens to be France's equivalent of the Oscar. And Clouds of Sils Maria is a really interesting uh, drama, and it kind of blurs the distinction between art and life. And it was directed, directed by Olivier Assayas. Uh, This is a film that I highly recommend as well if you're looking for something that will definitely uh, make you think, make you sit down and go, hmm, that was interesting. Let me think on this for a couple hours. (laughs) So yeah, that was it. Uh, Once again, uh, the rundown for my Criterion pickups uh, so far this month includes A Touch of Zen, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, The New World, and Clouds of Sils Maria. Four films I recommend wholeheartedly. Alrighty, that about does it for this week's edition of Victor's Corner. Once again, thank you so much for listening. You can catch our show all over the interwebs. Our main episodes are posted on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can also catch us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And you can also email the show at codexprimepodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to type in Victor in the subject line if you want your email to be read in the next edition of Victor's Corner. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in, and we will catch you next week, next Tuesday, November 15th, in which we're going to be talking about the Rhode Island Comic Con and Doctor Strange. In the meantime, be well, be awesome, and I'll see you when I see you. All right, take care, guys.